Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Well, I do want to highlight again um, Campus Sunday. I came here in 1982 as a campus minister at Howard University to establish a ministry there. And I did that for nine years. Uh, I was born again on the college campus. That's where I really met Christ. And uh, many of the men with whom I walk today in our Every Nation world, Every Nation is the organization under which this church finds its home. Many of us grew up together on the college campus, ministering on the college campus, starting campus ministries. And so this is part of our DNA. It's who we are. We don't have to try to do this. I love the campuses. We have a meeting that, that occurs on Sunday night at, the, at our campus um, at George Mason. And uh, about 120, 130 kids gather together every Sunday night. We have seven meetings on a Sunday in this church, four here, one in Sterling at Dominion High School, one with our Latino congregation that happens up at our 180 building up the street, about 115 folks speaking Spanish. It's marvelous. And then we've got a Sunday night service over at the campus. And it is that Sunday night is one of the most fun services you will ever be a part of. It'd be worth your while, even after you come here, to go there on Sunday night. If, if you're my age, though, you do need some earplugs. But they are crazy. They are nuts in a sanctified way. It's just great. It'll give you hope for the future. You may not get much hope when you look at CNN or read the paper, but you can get a whole lot of hope when you see what God is doing with this next generation. It is amazing, amazing. So we love to sow into our campus ministry, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do so substantively at the end of this service. Turn with me over to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to continue our series on the parables of Christ. The title of the sermon is Parables of Christ, Pursuing the Kingdom, Pursuing the Kingdom. Matthew 13, verses 45 through 46. Matthew 13. Verses 45 through 46. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Lord, help us as we study. Jesus is continuing with the theme of trying to bring the kingdom to an understanding with the disciples in ways that enlarge their capacity because right now they're focused on what it looks like naturally. And he is trying to expand it and while he does so, let them know that there is probably nothing more valuable in the earth than the kingdom and whatever you have is worth giving up for to get the kingdom. Now, the prior parables have been more focused on effort or technique, whether it's planting a seed or the effort needed to pull out the tares from the wheat or the woman who puts, a leaven, puts leaven in three pecks of flour. But this one isn't focused so much on technique as it is recognizing value. And it's important for you as a believer to recognize the value of the kingdom. And because the entire focus here is recognizing value, I believe that Jesus has 
gone from speaking of influence that the kingdom has to now focusing on the kind of person and the effort that it takes to find the kingdom. Not so much the seed itself, i.e. the mustard seed and what it does, or the leaven and what it does. Here, the pearl doesn't do anything. It just is. But the one who works to get the pearl, oh my goodness, he's got to exert great effort to find it, and then even greater effort to obtain it. A little bit different focus, different aspect of the kingdom from a different angle. And I want to talk to you about three things. One, how important it is to search with purpose. Two, generally speaking, you're going to stumble upon something when you do. And three, when you find something of great value, get it. I don't care what it costs. Get it. And this in the context of the kingdom. A merchant of pearls is a, is, is a man who has chosen a, a field of business that is precarious in its nature. You're dependent upon weather patterns and sea temperature and storms that, that will not come that wipe out the entire oyster population for that region of the world. You're dependent upon so many things that the, the, the word that Jesus used in the Greek to describe merchant was a word that was taken from another word named emporos, which means a man on a ship on a journey. And that probably is the best way to describe the, the intransient nature and unpredictability of the field of being a merchant who is searching for pearls. Because you don't know what you're going to get if you're going to get anything. Jesus was speaking in Jerusalem, or maybe now we're talking about Judea, but in Israel. And the closest sea to them where they could find pearls of value would be the Mediterranean. Now, the Mediterranean had uh, pearl oysters. Pearl oysters are the only oysters that produce pearls. Other mollusks will, but pearl oysters are the ones that do the best. They produce the best kinds of pearls. These are not the kinds of oysters that you eat in an oyster bar. Different oysters. These are, are, are different in nature and they produce different things. But the ones that produce the most beautiful and highest quality pearls are those in that region that were, were in the Persian Gulf, not the Mediterranean Sea. Now there are great quality pearls all over the world, but Jesus was speaking specifically of that region. And for a, a, a pearl merchant to find great pearls, if you lived in Israel, you had to travel four or 500 miles to get to the place where they were sold. And you didn't know whether you're going to find anything once you got there. Because even if it was the best season for pearls, the temperature, the water was right, there weren't any storms that washed away all the mullocks and pulled them out to see that there was the right kind of environment and the right air and right everything. You just don't know whether your 400-mile trip and then 400 miles back is really going to be worth it. You might find four-millimeter pearls. Now, if you know anything about pearls, those are little. You get eight to 12-millimeter pearls, that's serious. You, you go up past 12, you're talking about four or five thousand dollars in today's dollars for just one pearl 
amazing. And the beauty of the Persian Gulf, even though the Mediterranean Sea had salt water, and so does the Persian Gulf, the Persian Gulf had brackish water, meaning that there were streams or rivers that flowed into the Persian Gulf, and at the mouth of those rivers, the water would be half salty and half fresh, a mixture. And somehow or another, the oysters that existed in that environment produced the best quality pearls and the largest. And so the Persian Gulf was the place everybody wanted to go. FYI, the only way that pearls actually, excuse me, oysters actually produce pearls is if there is an irritant in the soft tissue of the pearl. They produce a thing called nacre, N-A-C-E-R, that tries to cover over the irritant to make the oyster feel better. And the irritant is actually a parasite that gets on the inside of the mollusks. And when it does so, the, 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 the oyster automatically produces his nacre, which is mother of pearl. It's a liquid, but then it hardens, and it produces one layer after another, after another, after another, after another, until you get this round pearl. Well, hopefully round pearl. What, what, what do you do with your irritants? I'm, I'm just asking. It's really not a part of the sermon, but what do you do with your irritants? Some of your irritants have names. Some of them got personality. What do you do with your irritants? When you see them walking through the door of the church, do you go left when they go right? <laughs> what do you do when difficult things come to your life? Do you do what you can to try to avoid it and press it away? Or do you allow it to come to your life, i.e. James 1, 2 and 3? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various irritants, various trials. Because the testing of your faith that God is about to do through the trial is there so that you can be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God uses irritants to bring value to your life. If you will accept the irritant and allow yourself to develop the character of God that doesn't allow the irritant to irritate you anymore. Are you listening to me? See, it's not so much that the person needs to change. God is trying to get you to change. Bring value to you by producing more patience, more character, more joy, more kindness to people who are unkind. Folks, get on your last nerve. By the way, you've got another one after your last one. What do you do with your irritants? They're in our life for a purpose. Oh, I wish they weren't there. But now that it is, value is going to come from me through it. The best pearls were in brackish water. And we think that somehow the pearls that were in the brackish water had to, to work through what it meant to filter salt water and then not so much salt water. And that caused irritants on the inside and maybe parasites lived in those environments a little bit more than they would have in all salt water. And so it produced the largest oysters and the largest pearls, and generally the most symmetrical and beautiful. And so people would travel there and go to find one. By the way, large pearls are, are found in the Bible. Um, over in the book of Revelation, it says in, I think, chapter 19, that a city came down out of heaven, this new Jerusalem, and it had 12 gates. John was seeing this vision, and each gate was made from one pearl, one. 
heaven, God's economy is different in glory. He, he uses the things of great value as construction material. The walls are made from diamonds. He uses them as bricks. The streets, pavement's gold. And, and the gates are pearls. <laughs> that ought to give you some ideas to the wealth that God has. If he uses what we consider to be most valuable as construction material, what does, what does he value? Ooh, that's a whole nother sermon. As I looked at that passage in a fresh way without being religious, I sat there and said, if, if each gate was, was made from one pearl, how big was the oyster? Wow, that's a big oyster, baby. That's a big oyster. But these pearls in the Mediterranean, excuse me, in the, in the Persian Gulf were the best. Now, what you, what you have as a merchant is somebody who doesn't die for the pearls, but goes and searches for those who have died for the pearls. Dived for the pearls. He, he's the one that buys them. He's the second generation of discovery. But, the, but there are people who had to go find them. And they were pretty skilled. Even though it was a blue-collar job, you had to be really skilled. You had to have some, some uh, character traits physically that allowed you to do things other people couldn't. Because when you dove for pearls, remember, there was no, there's no oxygen, no, what, what do you call it? Scuba gear. Nothing. And so you, you had to hold your breath for a long time to get as many of the oysters as you possibly could from the bottom up to the top. And then they didn't have goggles. So your eyes were constantly messed up with salt water. Yeah. And if, the, if, if, if it was hard to see because the ocean was crashing back and forth and it, you didn't have a huge coral reef to clean it like you do in the Caribbean, maybe it was like Ocean City. <laughs> it's same seawater. It's just that there's a coral reef that actually filters the water before it gets to the shore in the Caribbean. There's no coral reef on the East Coast. It doesn't exist. And so you just get water. It's hard to see through that when you open your eyes. You had to be very skilled to find the oysters. But the merchant would be the second generation who would enjoy the, the fruits of somebody else's finding. And may I say that there are people I know all over the city, great ministers, who have, who have dived into the darkness of their community to try to find value for other people that they might come and buy into what they're selling. And I'm using all kinds of business terms, but hear me. We work really, really hard at trying to produce something that adds value to your life. We don't just produce talent. It's not just about gifting. Every Tuesday is the most important meeting I've got of the week. It's not Sunday. It's Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. It's what I do midweek that allows this to mean something. Because it's not about a performance here. It's about seeing what God has done through us midweek and allowing that to pour over into your life. It's about the production of character and the emulation of Christ and all of your character traits to you. It's about making sure that we are people of integrity, holiness, and purity with relevance so that we don't seem weird on a Sunday morning. And we're not trying to pull out legalistic rules whereby you have to follow to somehow prove that you are holy. Holiness starts on the inside, works its way out, and is the most natural way God intended people to be.
We work really, really hard. We dive deep into the darkness in order to find something that is presentable to you on a regular basis. I get in this word on Wednesday, and I can. Some preachers are really good. They can study on Saturday night and come out blazing on Sunday morning. I can't do that. I can't do that. I've got to have four days to marinate in what I, what I study in. So I start on Wednesday, and I spend Wednesday reading my word and, and figuring out what I'm going to say. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm meditating on that thing constantly, letting it seep through my pores so that I don't need any notes when I come to you. And I made sure that I'm living what I'm telling you. There are some things that I lack, no question. There are inconsistencies in my life, maybe larger than in most. But I'm working every day to reduce those things so that when you look at me, you can see Jesus in every area of my life. That's what I work at. Not there yet. Like Paul says, I have not yet arrived. I'm not yet complete. But there's one thing I do. I press forward that I might take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Philippians 3. We work hard. And going into the darkness sometimes of our own soul. And seeing God deliver us from that which is wicked. And produce something that is integral for you on a Sunday morning. On a Wednesday night. At a small group. We require character. It's not an option here. Doesn't matter how talented you are. You won't serve unless you got something deep. Something substantive. Not impressed with gifting. Because by the nature of the word gift, you didn't come by it naturally. It ain't you. Somebody gave you that. But you've identified yourself by it. You've wrapped all your personality around it. It's so much who you are that when somebody's not impressed with your gift, you think they're not impressed with you. We're not impressed with gifting. Like it. It's a nice little addition to the cake. But if there's no substance of character, you'll sit in that chair. Pick up a plunger and go and stop a toilet. Do that. Go out there in the parking lot and have to deal with these wonderful Christians who don't want to go where you tell them to go. Do that. Do that every week. Be an usher and somebody directing you, telling you where they want to sit on Sunday morning, even though you're trying to tell them where they ought to sit. Do that. Serve in our children's ministry with a smile when children poop all over you. Do that. Character. We're long on that. Not perfect. Oh, not perfect, but long on it. Long. Because God, God can gift at any time. Any time. But when the gift is dispensed. It is best performed and, and distributed when it is targeted. And character allows for the gift to always hit the mark. I don't know if I should use this analogy, but I'm, I'm going to, and y'all just have to forgive me. Um, we, 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 when you when you, when, you, when you got a bullet in a gun, the barrel has to be pretty narrow because you don't want the bullet revolving in there and moving around as it comes out the end. When you have a shotgun, 
the barrel can be pretty wide because you got a lot of things in that shot and you're just hoping to hit an area. God wants to target you. And so the barrel has to be really narrow if he wants you to hit the mark. Are you listening to me? The barrel is character. Character. If you want to hit the bullseye every time, you're going to have to be a character human being. There are folks that hit all around the fives. And that's good enough. That's better than not hitting the target at all. But I'm not just trying to hit around it. God planned me and purposed me for a reason. I'm not trying to approximate. I'm trying to get up and every say, it's every day and say, Lord, did I hit it? Did I do what you wanted me to do? Not did I get close. Did I do what you wanted me to do? Character. What do you do with the irritants in your life? Let them produce something good. This merchant goes and searches. And he's the second generation. And so as we are producing things here, it's our hope that you would be like the merchant. Because again, we think Jesus is speaking to believers here now. And, 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 and let me tell you why. Because unbelievers, even though they think they're searching, they're really not. God is searching for them. They may be searching for something, but they aren't searching for the right thing because he's not hidden. He'll reveal himself to anybody. But the way we, we come into this thing called Christianity is that he finds us, not we find him. We, we cannot find him in our own wisdom and understanding because we're not smart enough. And so it's like my... It's like what I did with my two-year-old when we played hide-and-seek. I had to hide behind an inch-diameter lamp. Are you listening to me? I had to hide in plain sight because there's no way he could find me. And he thinks he found me. He does. He closed his eyes, counted the ten, and there I was in front of him. I found you, Daddy! Yeah, you did, didn't you? That's kind of like what it is when we think we found God. He helps us find him. But he's really searching for us. Luke 15, the parable of the, the, the shepherd and the sheep leaves in 99 to go find the one. The parable of the woman with the lost coin searches her entire house and asks people to come and help her so she can find the coin. The man with the boy. His son, who's lost, he goes and searches. He doesn't go out, but he's looking constantly over the horizon, hoping that his boy would come. There is a searching that God does for us. And though when we come to the reality of who he is, it feels like we found him, he actually found us. Now, after he finds us, he does require us to search. We have to begin to look. And again, when you get right with God in the beginning, the searching is kind of easy because he reveals himself to you so wonderfully. It's just really neat. Every day you wake up and it's like, I have hope today. It's so wonderful. I'm saved and forgiven. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And you get happy. But as you go on in this thing, it's, it's not somebody just feeding you a bottle anymore. You're going to have to cook. You've you got to cut some steak. and you, It gets tougher. And the seeking process is more arduous. 
requires that you search harder and longer and sometimes live through the disappointment of not finding. And this is why the parable of the merchant and the pearl is so important because there would be many times he would search and not find what he was looking for. He wouldn't find a pearl of great value. He'd find something, but he wouldn't find that one. He wouldn't find that, that, those clusters that would really make it worth his effort. And there was no guarantee when he went to search that he could find. There is something to the kingdom, though, and this is where, at some point, parables don't tell all the story. They tell part of the story, but there's something to the kingdom that when you come in and you begin to search, God will do a couple of things on the inside of you as you are searching for whatever you are searching. Now, let me give you an example. Man's trying to find a job, needs a job. And, and he's been trained well, he's, he's, he's been educated well, he wants to find a career path within his educational parameters, and, and he's praying to God every day, fasting, trusting him. And all of a sudden, it looks like there's a wonderful opportunity there. Goes for an interview. He goes through the second round, the third round. There are only four candidates left. He's praying every day, this would be the right opportunity. And all of a sudden, he gets a call from the, 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 the hire, the, the person who's in charge of hiring, he says, sorry, we gave it to somebody else. And I, What? Wait a minute now. I trusted you, God, for this. I believed you for this. What happened here? Sometimes disappointment is the only way for us to tell that after which we were really seeking. See, while you were praying and fasting for the last two weeks, you were supposed to be seeking after the Lord. And during that time, you found him in real ways. He encouraged you every day. He helped you. He gave you promises that he was going to provide for you. And he assured you of his care and love. And you found him in ways that you would not have had you not had this job in front of you to seek after. And so you found him. But when you didn't get the job, you were more disappointed about the opportunity lost than what was gained. Are you, are you listening? You forget about that you actually grew in the process and now you're mad about what you didn't get. But you didn't know that you'd be that mad when you didn't get what you wanted, especially when you believed it was God. You knew it was God. You had folk coming up prophesying to you, telling you it was God. You're going to get this job. I know the Lord's in this for you. People telling you all kinds of stuff you don't get at. And then you go back and you say, you know, you were wrong. You know what they do to prophets that are wrong? I mean, just strange stuff starts coming out of you because you're mad you didn't get what you wanted. You aren't happy that through the process, God did something. You forget about all that. Your disappointment overwhelms your game. God uses these moments where we're searching and don't find what we want. To reveal that sometimes our searching is ill-motivated. It's ill-motivated. And we are, we, are, we are supposed to be people that seek him first. Amen. Hebrews 11.6 says, he who believes that God is. He, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. The word seek there actually in the Greek is diligently seek. It means you've got to press. You've got to seek him with all of your heart. How? 
when it comes to decisions that are most important in your life, whether it's marriage or a job, a move, where your children are going to be educated or how, you begin to look at the principles of Scripture and you say, Lord, I want your will to be reflected in my decision-making. I don't just want to do it because it seems to be the right thing or this is the way I was raised or it seems to be a good option. I want to do it because I want your will reflected for my life in this area. He might be good-looking, but he might be wrong. And I realize you got your hopes out of it. He's a Christian. He, he's treating you nice. All these things, and all of a sudden, it just doesn't work out. And Lord, I thought you were in this. I thought you were in this, oh God. Did you find him more in the seeking, meaning God? Did he meet you in the areas of need like you never had before? Hold on to that, because there are many more valuable jokers. There are more fish in that pond. God can always give you more of what is temporal in its orientation and material. He can always replace that which you lost. That's not a hard thing for him. What is difficult, if you will, if anything is difficult for God and nothing is, but in anthropomorphic terms, as if he were us, what is difficult is trying to get you to become like him. That's hard because it requires that you comply. And many times we aren't willing to comply when we don't get what we want. And I can't tell you how often I have sought him and been completely disappointed. Not with bad things, with good things. Lord, I thought this was your will. I was trying to do the right thing. And you, I ran right into a brick wall. I was on this road for a week. And it turned out to be a dead end. Lord, what was that? How did this happen? Why did I waste so much time? And although I may not be excited of, 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 of having wasted so much time and wound up in a place I didn't want to be at, I now, after having done that so often, appreciate the fact that I had him to go through it with. And I've learned so much more from the process. I wish it wasn't trial and error. I wish it wasn't. But so much of seeking him and determining what his will is for our lives is, is realizing what his will isn't for our lives. He has whittled bread down for 30 years to where it's almost now. I'm not there yet, but it's almost like, I don't care, whatever you say. I mean, there's still some of bread that kicks around every once in a while and wants some stuff. But it's, it's like, yeah, okay. I'm, what, yes, I will be happy with what I don't like. I will enjoy my broccoli, thank you very much. I've learned to accept the will of God and to pick up my cross with joy and not to be mad about that which I didn't get or upset about that which I have to take. But to enjoy the will of God, that's where God wants us all to be. I still have some of me kicking around every once in a while, but I'm, I'm less of me than I've ever been. Are you listening to me? This is a process of seeking. And we are called to do this forever. Seek first his kingdom, Matthew 6. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Look at the birds of the air, 25 through 33. Look at the birds of the air. They don't work. They don't do a thing. They don't labor. Yet your heavenly father provides for them. They don't store into barns. They don't save. They don't have a 401k. They don't have a no saving, no 529 plan for their kids. They got nothing. But the Lord provides for them every day. Look at the lilies of the field. Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like them. 
Yet tomorrow they're going to be thrown into the fire. Will not God clothe you? Therefore, do not be like the Gentiles who worry about what they're going to eat and drink and wear. You seek first the kingdom, and God will give you all this other stuff. Now, I'm beginning to close. If you seek first the stuff, you might get it. No guarantee. You might. There are a lot of people who get the stuff. You know Rich, successful, on top of the world, they think. They got all the stuff. And they're in the lead of whoever has the most toys at the end wins. But if you get the stuff, that's all you get. You don't get the kingdom. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the rule of God in your life that allows you to live best. That's what the kingdom is. There are a lot of people who are going to glory that never experience the joys of living in his kingdom. Under his rule, the benefits of all of his government, they never get to experience that. They stay out there in the world. They've got their salvation experience. They dabble in Christianity every once in a while. They visit church every once in a while. But they do not let the kingdom rule over every area of their life. And so they are much like visitors with a visa. Coming in for a little bit and then going on back home to where they are comfortable. They don't experience the kingdom. They get all the stuff, no kingdom. But Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom, you get all the kingdom. Everything that God has for you, all the goodness, all the grace, all the empowerment, all of his will, his wisdom, his understanding, and you get the stuff. Why am I seeking the stuff then? What about... Seeking the stuff is going to really benefit me in the end because when I get the stuff, I can't take it with me when I die. I mean, it's temporal stuff, and temporal stuff doesn't last. If I seek the kingdom, I get the kingdom, and God gives me the stuff. But if I seek the stuff, I may get the stuff, and even if I get the stuff, I don't get the kingdom. You all are smart. (laughs) Seems to me that the decision to seek the kingdom, because God's promises are true, It's the wisest thing to do. This merchant of pearls saw it. And when he found it, oh, the beauty is that God let you find him. In this thing, God let you find him. Even in the midst of disappointment, God let you find him. And when you find him, there's something about finding him in the midst of his government in the earth. Finding him in all of his goodness and grace that ought to... It ought to prompt you like it prompted this pearl merchant. Whatever you want, whatever it costs, I'll give it. Because you've been so good to me. Whatever it costs, I'll give it. It doesn't matter how much I have to pay. Whatever it is, I'll give it. That's the way the kingdom is. Now, as we look at it experientially, rather than bringing it, leaving it just into the, in the ethereal and not bringing it down practically... The kingdom is best expressed in its concentration in church. God wants it to be every place. The kingdom ought to be in your workplace. It ought to be in your business. It ought to be in your neighborhood. It ought to be at your kids' soccer games. There ought to be an expression of the kingdom wherever we go because we are bringing it with us of God's good rule and kindness to people that desperately need it. But it's best expressed here in the church in concentration because everybody who gathers together, at least supposed to, 
desire his rule to be evident in this place. And so when you find a concentrated force of his kingdom, are you willing to sell all to be a part of it? Are you willing to come in with everything you've got and say, this is where I'm going to be planted. This is what God wants to work through my life. I'm not asking you to give it all to a church. I'm asking you to give it to him and express it through practically some congregation. And if we aren't your cup of tea, I understand. I'm, I'm an acquired taste. I get that. I sit on a stool. I wear a bow tie. I get that. But you ought to buy into the kingdom someplace. Someplace ought to reflect your selling all. I got, I, I, my, my whole lot, everything I am and all that I have is fully invested here. It's not that this is the most holy and best place to invest in on the planet. I'm sure there are other places that are much more worthy of your support. But it's what God has called me to here. Other places might do it better. Other places might do it with greater excellence. I don't know. I know what God has called me to here. And for the last 33 years, we have invested our life to make this something worthy of your support. There ought to be some reflection of your commitment in some place, if this is not it, that says, I have given my all for your kingdom, O oh God, as it's expressed where you want me to be. Because it's worth it. I'm asking that the Holy Spirit inspire you to let everything, your finances, your decision-making for who you, who you work for, all your moves, opportunities, other, other places, everything that you have to do and have to be, run through the filter of the kingdom because that's what you are to seek first. It doesn't mean you can't seek other things. It's, it means that you seek the kingdom first. Make sense? Let's pray.